0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30 Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds The Irish History Podcast is brought to you exclusively by the support of listeners like yourself. You can help the show by contributing at irishhistorypodcast.ie Welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This episode entitled The Road to War is the fourth part of my series Secret Societies, Communism and Coal, Life in the Castlecomber Colliery. Today's episode begins in the serene environs of the residence of the Castlecomber mine owners Richard Henry Wandersford and his wife Florence in 1896 where we will look at what life was like in the mansion of a wealthy family at the turn of the 20th century. Then as we embark along the road to war we will see profound changes shape the coal fields before we finish in the trenches of World War I battlefields and the streets of Dublin during the 1916 rebellion events which would have a major impact in Castle Before I begin, I want to thank all of you who have donated to the show in the last few weeks. Your contributions have given me the resources to spend time in archives researching this episode to a level previously not possible. This illustrates what a well-funded podcast can achieve. From newspaper archives to the Wandersford family private papers, I have unearthed previously unpublished documents some of which, as we will see, are pretty sensational. If you enjoy the show and want to see this level and depth of independent research continue, you can get behind the podcast. It's really simple to help out. Just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie and click donate. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie and click donate. Finally, before we start, I would like to thank John Kerwin of the Kilkenny Archives for his time and help. Much of the material from this show comes from the Kilkenny Archives Prior Wandersford collection. In 1896 the 26-year-old Florence Jackson von Schwartz Pryor faced huge but welcome changes in her life. A woman of German descent who had been born in Antigua and lived in Nova Scotia, Canada. She had recently wed the heir of the Castlecomer estate, the 31-year-old Richard Henry Wandersford. After a ceremony, that had taken place in Bournemouth England the couple set out for what would be her new home, Castlecomber House. For Florence this journey to Ireland can only have been laced with apprehension and a certain degree of concern. Ireland in the late 19th century was an unsettled country. No one could predict what lay ahead. The future of the island and its relationship with England was known the world over as the Irish question and had been a thorn in the side of English politicians for decades. Since the 1860s, the secretive Fenian movement had been planning revolts to force Britain from Ireland, while nationalist politicians demanded home rule, a form of autonomy within the British Empire. Since 1879, the land war, covered in the last episode, had seen tensions in Ireland rise further as violent attacks against major landowning families like the Wandisfords had increased if this was not enough fuel to flame Florence's concerns about her new home. Castlecomer itself was an unusual corner of Ireland. Situated in the uplands of northeast east Kilkenny, the Wandersford lands sat on large coal deposits known as the Leinster Coalfield. While the mines had brought the family wealth, the appalling conditions in which the miners worked had provoked unrest that had led to strikes and even assassinations. However, whatever her early fears may have been, they were suited on her first day in her new home. The train line, which was spreading throughout Ireland in these days, had yet to reach Castlecomer, so the newlyweds presumably travelled as far as Kilkenny before changing over to horse and carriage to complete the final twelve miles of the journey. What awaited Florence in Castlecomer was a welcome not seen in the town in many a year. Fifty years later, in 1946, Jeremiah Kelly, who lived on Kilkenny Street in the town, would write to Florence recalling that special day. I well remember your homecoming and the reception from the people, the removal of the horse from the carriage, the fireworks, the large concourse outside the house and how Captain Wandersford looked down at his bride as if for inspiration when he faltered in his address to the people. Jeremiah Kelly's mention of the removing of the horse may refer to a practice where the gathered crowd actually pulled the carriage on the final leg of the journey. As she peered out at the gathered crowd, tensions around the land war, the Irish question or the town's mining disputes were nowhere to be seen. Furthermore, once she set her eyes on her new house, Florence can't have been disappointed. Castlecomber House, a three-storied mansion, was one of the largest in Count Kilkenny. Consisting of two massive wings it was topped with mock battlements. Built along the banks of the River Dean it was surrounded by hundreds of acres of lawns, walled gardens and landscaped forests. This vast domain was a private retreat for the exclusive use of Florence, her husband Richard and their guests. According to local lore this area, known as the Domain had trees from every country in the world. Most famous among them a giant redwood which can still be seen in Castlecomer Discovery Park today. However, those first impressions of a harmonious Castlecomer were somewhat deceptive. Everyone in the town was not as impressed with the Wandersfords as Jeremiah Kelly. Indeed, as much could have been deduced from those who had not turned out to welcome her as those who did. For example, it's probably safe to assume Castlecomer's Republican movement who campaigned for Irish independence, saw it as below their dignity to pull the carriage of Richard Wandersford and his new bride. Each year they organised demonstrations in the town to mark the anniversary of the Manchester Martyrs, three Irishmen executed in 1867 after a botched attempt to free Irish prisoners. Likewise the leading figures of the town's coal miners who had organised strikes in 1881, 1883, 1885 and most recently in 1890 may well have been less than impressed with such sycophantic displays. While the tensions and resentments held by these people for the Wandersfords may not have been visible at the great homecoming they were every bit as much of the fabric and fibre of everyday life in Castle Comer, and indeed Florence's future life in the town. It was certainly clear that the Wandlesford family had a complex relationship with the people they ruled over. However, in the coming months and indeed years, there was little sign of the tensions that existed in the community. Florence and Richard Wandlesford, if anything, enjoyed a pleasant life. They had wasted no time in starting a family as Florence was already pregnant when she arrived in Castlecomer, giving birth to the first of her five children, a son called Christopher, in December 1896, exactly nine months after their marriage. While the women of Castlecomer faced the arduous challenges in running a household and rearing children on their own, Florence hired a staff to do this for her by 1901, having given birth to another son, Ferdinand, and a daughter, Vera, the Wandersford family maintained a live-in staff of nine at Castle House. These ranged from maids to a footman to a butler and even a fitness instructor who tutored the children in a purpose-built gym in the house. Nevertheless, the somewhat fraught relations and tensions mentioned earlier were always in the background. Just to maintain their position at the top of society in the coalfield, the Wandersfords, like all such families, constantly reinforced their dominance by heavily regulating what interactions they had with the wider community. Next we will look at the way they lived day-to-day life, something that would prove very important in the coming decades. In order to reinforce the boundaries between them and wider society, the Wandersfords kept their distance from the people of Castlecomber. None of the live-in staff at Castlecomber House came from the town or even County Kilkenny. Instead they brought in people from other areas, with some even coming from as far away as Scotland. Even these people were treated with distance. The servants addressed the family members by title rather than just name. Richard Wandersford was referred to as Sir. Florence was mistress, while even the children were referred to by their titles as Master Christopher or Miss Vera. Later in life, the youngest of the children, Doreen Wandersford, who only died 17 years ago in 1999, recalled her youth in Castle House, and I quote from her now, In those early days, there were two very important matters in life. One was class, the other was religion. Nowadays, this all seems very bigoted, but in those times, it was not regarded as such. The upper class were respected by those in their service. That this respect was willingly given was a matter of opinion. The Wandersford certainly showed little respect for their servants. As was common for the age, while they ate upstairs in the dining room, the servants ate downstairs in what was simply called the Servants' Hall and another area plainly called the Room. Even in prayer the family insisted on strict division. Doreen Wandersford later recalled, Family prayer was held every morning in the dining room before breakfast, the family at one end of the room and those of the staff who were Protestant at the other. One exception to this rigid hierarchy was the Scottish nanny, Jessie Allen, who Doreen would later refer to as a second mother. Even outside the house, the Wandersfords did not socialise or fraternise with the people of Castlecomer who worked in their mines, rented their lands or traded in the town. Florence would rarely if ever have seen or encountered the town's miners who worked underground often six days a week from dawn till dusk. Her life was unimaginably different. In the 1890s and 1900s she and Richard emerged as something of a society couple in Kilkenny socialising with other families of their own class. Attending balls in neighbouring houses they, like the other landed gentry, were something akin to celebrities of the modern era. Their movements were reported in the press in a style reminiscent of modern Hollywood stars. When the neighbouring Ralph Coote of Ballyfin House married Alice Webber in 1904, the Leinster Express published a pretty tedious blow-by-blow account of the wedding, down to who gave what presents. On that occasion, Richard and Florence gave the Coots a silver tea caddy. Each year they hosted large hunts and shooting parties in Castlecomer. These were exorbitant to say the least. In one shoot alone Richard and a party of six others shot 613 animals. The following year he exceeded this with a haul of a thousand pheasants, rabbits and woodcocks. But even this was regarded as being below what was expected. If anything this underscored the vast chasm in day to day life. Many of the people in Castlecomer struggled to put food on the table. While Richard had far more than he could ever know what to do with. While the Wandersfords' lifestyle might sound fictional, this privileged life was all too real. Everything I've mentioned is drawn from their own accounts. However, in the early 20th century, this lavish world was about to crash headlong into an Ireland that was changing radically and fast. The Wandersfords' wealth and privilege were all increasingly under threat by the year 1900. In 1894, Richard Henry Wandersford had inherited 20,000 acres of land, the coal deposits beneath it and the great house in Castle Comer, where they lived. While this made him a wealthy man, it was something of a poison chalice. He faced threats on three separate fronts once he inherited this wealth. Firstly, had he not already known, it was increasingly clear that the day of the great landlord in Ireland was at an end. As we saw in the last episode, the land war, had made their long-term future unviable. Tenants were increasingly well organised and had secured better rights. As the 19th century drew to a close, the writing was on the wall and many families were simply waiting for an opportunity to sell up and rid themselves of estates that were increasingly becoming a burden. It was clear that the British government were going to introduce a major compensation package to allow tenants buy their land off their landlords once and for all. However, the imminent loss of the family lands of Castle Commer was only the start of Richard Wandersford's problems. While his position of landlord was coming to an end, the coal mining operations at Castle Commer also had a questionable future. It was undoubtedly potentially profitable, but mining was booming across the world and in the late 19th century Castle Commer faced stiff competition from the technologically more advanced operations in Wales and England. In comparison, the collieries in Castlecomber were poorly managed, badly organised and falling behind. A major consolidation and overhaul was desperately needed. However, Richard Wandersford did not even control the mines directly to do this. Since the 18th century, the family had sublet them to a series of mine managers. By the 1870s, the majority of the mines were run by a handful of these middlemen, the most important of whom was Joseph Dobbs, who ran several pits, including the two biggest, called the Jarrow No. 6 and The Rock. But even if Richard Wandersford could take back control of the mines, modernising them wouldn't be easy. A few decades earlier, getting the coal miners to work in deep mines had taken nearly 30 years, a social revolt and ultimately the chaos that followed the famine to push it through. The workers understandably were always wary of changes being brought in by their employer in fear that it would result in them losing their jobs. They had increasingly shown their power as well by organising several strikes. The third and final problem the Wandersfords faced was one of political instability. Families like theirs owed their status and power to the fact that Ireland was ruled directly by Britain in the late 19th century. However, since the 1850s a powerful nationalist movement had emerged in Ireland. While this movement was divided between those who wanted home rule, that's a form of autonomy within the British Empire, and those who wanted full independence, they both agreed that major change was needed. While in 1900 few outside this nationalist movement could envisage an independent Ireland, everyone knew that these tensions could lead to bloodshed. Indeed Richard Wandersford's early actions on this front were not promising. In 1893 he had become the first president of Castlecomer Unionist Society which was committed to loyal fidelity and earnest desire to maintain the legislative union between Great Britain and Ireland. This if anything only served to widen the gulf between Wandersford and his tenants and more importantly the miners many of whom were heavily influenced by nationalist and republican ideas. However, in the coming years, while it was clear that Castlecomer's future, or at least that of the Wandersford family in the town, hung in the balance, Richard Wandersford would emerge as one of the most dynamic members of the gentry and adapted to these changing times. He would even win begrudging respect for many who would have been inclined to oppose him, as we will see next. Having taken over the Castlecomer estate, the decisions facing Richard Wandersford were immense. Given the instability that clearly lay ahead, he did have something of a nuclear option available to him. He could sell up everything in Castlecomer and move back to the estates the family held in Kirklington in Yorkshire. No matter what we think of Wandersford though, and as we shall see he was a very complex man, quitting was not in this man's dictionary. By the late 19th century, Wandlesford had developed a vision for Castle in the 20th century or perhaps one where the Wandlesford family were still top of the food chain in the town. This would require major changes which would have huge implications for the people of Castle This had the potential to be disastrous as Richard and his family ultimately had little understanding of the lives of the people given their privileged background. Nevertheless, his initial forays into transforming the town were successful. Richard began by modernising Castlecomer and developing small scale industry in the town. He diverted a channel from the River Dean to Power Sawmill and by 1898 he had also opened a basket factory. These proved popular providing employment but were only a foretaste of the radical changes that lay ahead when he turned to deal with the looming issue of land. For nearly three centuries the Wandersford family had owned nearly all the land in Castlecomer. However this all came to an end around 1903. That year the British government introduced what was known as the Wyndham Land Act which offered loans to tenants to buy their land from their landlords. While some landlords hoped to hang on to their estates Richard Wandersford did not look this gift horse in the mouth. Whether he liked it or not he knew there was no future as a landlord and agreed to sell up. For the canny and astute Richard this was only one step in his plan. While he sold his lands He refused to sell properties in Castlecomer Town and indeed expanded his building programme of houses in the colliery district. This not only gave him space to develop the town as he wanted but his control of houses in the colliery was crucial for the second stage of his plan. While he relinquished control of the land he simultaneously strengthened his grip on the coal mines by buying out the remaining middlemen and taking direct control. 1905 proved to be the pivotal year when some of the leases held by the most important middleman, Joseph Dobbs, expired. These leases were not renewed and complex negotiations where Richard Wandlesford would buy out Dobbs began. The correspondence of these negotiations are preserved in the National Archives in Dublin and they reveal a fascinating aspect of early 20th century life, where there was no telephones, mobile phones or email. Nearly everything was done by post and telegram. Today we would find it infuriating. Both Dobbs and Wandersford were separately moving through England while these negotiations were taking place in February and March 1905. While they moved they forwarded revised documents by post to each other, constantly keeping each other informed of their future movements so they could keep in touch and potentially meet if needed. Given what was at stake, the prospect of not knowing whether to wait for a letter that might be about to arrive or to move on to your next location must have been difficult. It makes you appreciate the simplicity of just being able to pick up the phone today. Despite these obstacles, the rigorous negotiations by the end of 1905 and Richard Wandersford had taken full control of Castlecomer's mining operation. His sale of the land and takeover of the mines transformed his family fortunes. While the mines were in need of work, they could be turned around. However, there was no future in land. He had in effect shed the dead weight of his interests, and while he may have sold his lands around Castlecomer, he didn't lose any status he held in the town. However, while he had successfully taken control of the mines and preserved his status, his work was only beginning. The overhaul of Castlecomer collieries, the doing away with outdated practices, and the modernising of the entire operation all lay ahead. All this had to be done with a workforce who were entirely dubious of his motives and were willing to strike if they thought that any of his moves affected them adversely. But before we look at this, I want to take a quick break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. Having taken control of the colliery, Richard began major works to overhaul the coalfield. In 1907 he sank a new mine. This was the seventh and final pit into what was known as the Jarrow Seam and was unsurprisingly called the Jarrow No. 7. This was followed by another mine, the Vera, named after Wandersford's eldest daughter and according to Doreen Wandersford, his favourite child. These moves were not in any way opposed by the miners given it provided employment. More controversial though was his vision of increasing the mechanisation of the mining operation. When he gained control of the pits in 1905, much of the movement of coal beneath the surface was still carried out by human labour. This back-breaking work was inefficient and in 1910 the first pit ponies began working in the collieries at Castlecomer. These small horses were bred especially for working in mines. They were fed and lived in stables below ground, rarely if ever being returned to the surface. When eventually they were retired and finally brought above ground, they were usually blind. Given that coal mining was not a major industry in Ireland, many of these ponies were brought in from the north of England. Potentially more controversial was Wandersford's changes to the operations above ground. This began almost immediately and in 1906, tractors were brought in for the first time to haul coal. Now for the likes of the 81-year-old farmer Thomas Brennan who lived in Cretton Cook in the heart of the colliery the changes he had seen in his lifetime were immense. As a young man before the famine the coal mines had been little more than shallow dangerous holes in the ground. Now they ran for hundreds of feet beneath the surface with tractors starting to replace the horse and cart. This move of bringing in tractors, though, can't but have put some people out of work. However, there was little evidence that there was any major resistance. Indeed, Wandersford's early changes provoked very little unrest in general. Of course, there was some small-scale resistance. The workers passively opposed small changes where they feared it might change their working conditions. For example, they refused to use the more modern hammer drills when they were introduced, claiming they didn't know how, when they were well able. They also tried to stop anyone from outside the Castlecoma region working in the pits. They in effect tried to run a closed shop to guarantee work for their children. A mine manager who had come from Durham in the north of England observed in 1918 how they made it very difficult for anyone new in the pits. Nevertheless, given the comparatively major changes underway in the mines, this resistance was very limited. This was strange as we saw in previous shows in the 1830s a near full-scale revolt had broken out to resist changes being brought in then. However, the early 20th century was a very different time and most importantly, Richard Wandersford had developed a certain degree of goodwill by introducing changes that improved the lives of the miners. For example, in 1918 he installed air compressors in the pits which brought fresh air into what were normally dank shafts. For those working below ground... This transformed their working day. Perhaps though even more important was the somewhat curious welfare system he operated in the mines which saw men that were often too old to work still being retained on the payroll. In 1918 a visitor from the Board of Trade in England was struck by the amount of people who were employed on the surface for what was a relatively small output of coal. This was because, and to quote a letter from the time, Many of the men were merely pensioners and were kept on and wages paid long after they were fit for any kind of employment. While this might seem harsh in the 21st century, forcing old men to work when they clearly couldn't, it's worth remembering that only those over 70 qualified for what was a meagre pension in the early 20th century. Many of the coal miners who worked in the pits from the age of 14 or younger were no longer fit for any kind of work well before they reached 70. Being allowed to sort coal on the surface did help keep them out of the dreaded workhouse. However Castlecomber mine was far from enlightened in the way it was run. As I mentioned earlier Richard Wandersford was a very complex man influenced by many different factors and next we will see the darker side of his management of the colliery. Richard Wandersford, as the historian Nora Brennan has pointed out, very much saw himself as a patriarch of society in Castlecomer, who had certain obligations to the people. However, with this paternalistic attitude, Richard saw himself as an authoritarian, father figure, believing very much that his say was final. He believed he knew what was best. Indeed, he was perhaps one of the worst placed people to be making decisions about the future of the wider community. While he was by no means a cruel man, he did come from a different class to his workers. He had never put in a gruelling ten-hour shift below ground, maybe lying in water for most of the day. He had little understanding of ordinary life or the needs of his workers. At the end of the day, what was good for Wandersford was not necessarily good for his employees. His bottom line was profit and this ultimately led to conflict with his workforce. This was abundantly clear in 1908 when the British government of the day brought in the Coal Mines Regulation Act which restricted the time miners could legally work below ground to eight-hour shifts. This legislation would apply to Ireland which was then part of the United Kingdom. The introduction of the eight-hour day would have a major impact in Castle The working day in the early 20th century previous to this legislation was nearly 10 hours long the miners in Castlecomer arrived in work at 7 in the morning. They remained below ground all day, taking two 30-minute lunch breaks. While their tiring working day came to an end at 5pm, many did not reach the surface until 5.40 before spending half an hour or more walking home. The only exception to this was those who worked in water, who were allowed to leave at 4pm, but there were no showers or changing rooms so they had to walk home in wet clothes. These long working hours meant that many of the miners never saw daylight six days a week for several months of the year as the sun had not risen before they went to work and had set before they left the pits. The introduction of the eight-hour day would obviously change life for the better for the miners. However, no matter how reasonable this was, Richard Wandersford opposed the measure. From his perspective it only meant a fall in production. He launched a campaign to have the Castlecomer coalfield exempted from the new eight-hour day. His reasoning was that often catch-cry of such men when he claimed that the eight-hour day stood in the way of progress. He claimed that it would hamper if not prevent the development and increase the peculiar difficulties which already exist in this coalfield. Unsurprisingly he didn't mention his workers and what way it would affect their lives. Naturally this irritated the miners. Just imagine it yourself. You find out that the man who you work for, who lives in the big house, who has never worked a shift in his life but gets the profit from your work, wants to deny you rights being given to every other coal miner in England, Wales and Scotland? On this occasion his campaigning did not lead to conflict in the coal fields though because Wandersford's campaign failed and the law was brought in. However his opposition to the eight hour day was counterproductive even from his own perspective it was probably a factor that saw the trade union movement in Castlecomer rekindled. As we saw in the last show, the first trade union was founded in Castlecomer in 1881, but it seems to have floundered sometime after the strikes of the 1880s. However, in 1908 the Kilkenny Mining Federation was established. This trade union was the most advanced in the coal district yet. The influence of socialism and radical trade unionism prevalent in coal mines of England and Wales could be seen in their 11-point manifesto. Their demands included the raising of funds for mutual support, the campaigning for legal protections around working conditions in the mines and crucially given what Wandersford had tried to do they also set the shortening of hours as a key objective. They also had some broader demands when they stated that they sought to assist all associations that had the same objectives and assist in any movement that may be considered to be of interest to the working classes generally nevertheless despite the fact that wandsworth had opposed the 8-hour day the Kilkenny mining federation does not appear to have been that successful in castlecomer it may already have been defunct in 1912 when most coal mines in the united kingdom went on strike across the irish sea 1 million miners walked off the job demanding a minimum wage. However, the pits of Castlecomber stayed working through this 37-day strike. Indeed, so competent was the management that their mines would keep running that they publicised the fact that they would be able to exploit the fact that all mines in Britain were closed. Even though Wandlestrad had proven himself a ruthless employer at times, his more welfare-orientated policies may have been one of the reasons why the trade union movement failed in these years. Also, these were, generally speaking, good times in Castlecomer. In 1912, 600 people were working in the pits, while profits two years earlier, in 1910, had already reached £6,000. By 1914, Richard Wanderstead could reflect back on the 20 years since he had inherited the estate from his grandmother. Happy in the knowledge, he was succeeding. While Castlecomer's mines still lagged behind the collieries in England in terms of technology, things were nevertheless changing. However, 1914 brought an end to an era of relative peace. Indeed, it arguably spelled the end of an entire way of life. The Castlecomer colliery would never be the same again. That year, World War I began, and while the main events took place on far-flung battlefields, by the time the great empires had seen 17 million men slaughtered, the world was changed forever. No one escaped the impact of this war, be it direct or indirect. So now we need to follow the lives of the people of Castle Comer who were changed by what was called the Great War or the War to End All Wars. It was far from great and if anything only started dozens more wars. In the early months of 1914, Richard Wandersford had reached the height of his popularity in Castlecomer, even though they were immensely difficult times. While it is remembered as the year that World War I began, for the people of Castlecomer, until August at least, events were very much rooted in local politics. Early 1914 saw a crisis envelop Ireland that threatened civil war on the island. The Liberal government of the day had made it clear it was going to introduce Home Rule which would give Ireland autonomy within the framework of the British Empire. Castlecomber's nationalists were overjoyed. Decades of struggle was about to be rewarded. Richard Wandersford, however, was outraged. As a Unionist he desired the strongest possible connection with Britain so he saw Home Rule as disastrous. He, and men like him, feared what lay ahead and in an Ireland that would inevitably be dominated by the majority who were nationalists by the summer the situation was growing increasingly tense. In Ulster, the heartland of unionism, militias had already begun to arm themselves, threatening they would oppose Home Rule by force. This move was matched by the arming of nationalist militias to counter any unionist move. Ireland was a powder keg waiting to explode. In Castlecomber that year a great battle took place, not with guns but at the ballot box. Richard Wandersford put himself forward as the unionist candidate to stand against the popular sitting home rule councillor, J.P. Fogarty. One would imagine Wandersford could expect to lose in the climate that was abroad that summer. However, Castlecomer and its coal mines were somewhat unique. While other landlords were men of the past, Richard Wandersford had proven himself a man able to adapt with the times. Despite his opposition to the eight-hour day, there was much he could point to in the area to prove his worth. His expansion of the mines and the founding of industry in the town had provided employment. He also sponsored the first bus service, an agricultural bank in the town and a cooperative creamery in 1913, all of which were hugely popular. Furthermore, he assuaged concerns over his unionism by describing himself as a patriotic Irishman and distanced himself from the militias of Ulster. So successful was he in broadening his appeal that he managed to gain the backing of the Catholic parish priests of Castlecomber and Clock who would have been expected to support the Home Rule candidate. When the campaign got going properly, Wandersford focused on bread and butter issues, such as the improvements in the town and his achievements, while the Home Rule campaign focused on the sins of the Wandersford family in the past. People can't live on history, but they could live on Wandersford's jobs, and Castlecomer returned a Unionist in the election that year when Richard Wandersford won. This was no mean feat at all. Wandersford had in effect straddled a political chasm in Ireland. However, that divide would soon prove too great even for him when he had to reveal where his ultimate allegiances lay. The incident that forced Wandersford to nail his colours to the mast occurred on a hot summer's evening in Dublin when the British army fired on a nationalist demonstration killing three people. This caused outrage and was widely condemned by most of the press. However when a motion of condemnation was put to Kilkenny County Council Wandersford refused to support it using the age-old political doublespeak that a full investigation was needed. If and by July 1914 it now seemed only a matter of time that civil war broke out such sympathies would not get him very far in Castle He would inevitably clash with many people in the town and indeed his workers For example, an emerging leader amongst the miners, Thomas Campion, for one, had strong nationalist sympathies. While Ireland stood on the brink of civil war that summer, fate intervened and the winds of change swept over the island again, altering the course of history in a dramatic fashion. While tensions between nationalists and unionists were brewing, friction was developing between the great empires of Europe as well. With origins stretching back decades these tensions erupted into open war in the late summer of 1914. As all major powers were drawn in, the British Empire declared war on the German Empire on August 4th 1914. Ireland, as part of that empire, was now at war. The British government immediately set the divisive Home Rule question aside until after the conflict was over. While they could agree on little else, both Unionist and Home Rule movements in Ireland supported Britain in the hope that they would be rewarded for their loyalty. This outbreak of war brought new challenges and indeed mixed fortunes to Castlecomer, as we will see next. With the outbreak of World War I, Manny and Castlecomer must have breathed a sigh of relief. Civil war had been averted as both home rulers and unionists agreed to support Britain's new conflict. This was a mixed blessing for some. No doubt war was good for coal mines. Inevitably the production of war materials would see the demand for coal increase. In the early weeks and months of World War I Castlecomer was put on a war footing. For those supportive of the conflict and there were sadly all too many the town was buzzing with activity. The Prince Grounds which normally hosted cricket games in those days was used as a training course where ex-army men instructed younger men in target practice. Richard Wandersford took the lead in mobilising men to sign up to fight. He also instructed the Castlecomer hunt to train horses for military use. Such was his support for the war that Lord Kitchener, the famous moustached general who appeared on recruitment posters with his outstretched arm over the slogan Your Country Needs You, wrote to Castlecomer House, thanking him for his efforts. Although he was too old to be expected to join up, his sons Christopher and Ferdinand both joined the British Army. Indeed, given he became so enthused by the war himself, Richard Wandersford eventually followed his sons into the army in 1915, despite being overage. A few dozen others from Castlecomer also joined up and it certainly must have affected the overall management of the collieries. Robert Beresford Gahan, later known as Captain Gahan, the Director and Secretary of the Mines, also enlisted. No doubt there were many poachers around the town only too happy to see the back of Andrew Jemison Wandersford's gamekeeper, when he donned the khaki and headed for the front. Rank-and-file miners, however, were not so enthusiastic. In the exhaustive records compiled by the Kilkenny historian John Kerwin, it would appear that less than half a dozen men left the pits for the army. Overall, Richard Wandersford was disappointed by the General Kilkenny mobilisation by December 1915. In total only 1,800 men had enlisted from the county which he said was not much to boast about. Given what they were being sent to, it was 1,800 men too many. The experiences of the Castlecomber men who had signed up varied massively. Christopher Wanderford enjoyed the privileges of coming from a wealthy family. In his letters home he asked for extensive supplies to be sent to him in France where he also talked about the privileges he enjoyed when he was behind the front in Rouen. In one letter he even moaned about a lack of cake before saying how he was meeting a friend and heading out for oysters. Others had a much tougher life. When eight less well-off Castlecomber men were captured and sent to prisoner of war camps in Germany they struggled to survive. Sadly these men's families did not have the resources to send them food parcels. In a letter home one of the eight, Patrick Holden, said he had not seen Mike the Wire or Martin Comerford in a long while. This was somewhat strange. This Mike Dewar was my great grandfather and he didn't fight in World War I. However, he and Martin Comerford were butchers in Castle Comer and Holden's words were a coded reference that they were not being fed any meat in the prisoner of war camps. However, ultimately, whether they were fed or not, many of the Castle Comer soldiers died just the same. Of the eight held in the POW camps in Germany, two died in captivity. Meanwhile, the future heir of the mines and the eldest son of the Wandersford family, Christopher, was killed in a gas attack at the Battle of Arras in 1917. A heartbroken Florence Wandersford kept the final unposted letter she had written to her son, which is still in the family archive today. Even for those who survived the war, life would never be the same again. How could it be? John Nolan, one of the A. Castlecomber prisoners, had had his testicles and kidney removed after he had contracted TB. Meanwhile Doreen Wandersford later revealed that her brother Ferdinand, while not physically injured, never fully recovered from his experiences at the front. One particular incident of seeing a comrade being blown to bits beside him appears to have haunted him and Doreen recalled hearing him screaming in the night from nightmares when he returned home. Richard Henry Wandersford himself survived the war, having joined up at the age of 45 he was given a post in the Royal Horse Fusiliers, a supply unit behind the lines. However, he was unable for this work and secured an early release in the first half of 1917. This was after he had received the promotion to captain, a title he used for the rest of his life. While the soldiers from Castlecomer endured a hellish experience, the survivors came back to a transformed world. During the first two years of the war life in Castlecomer continued much as it had the battlefields were far away and if anything the demand for coal was increasing however after April 1916 the strains of war took their toll and the community became increasingly divided these divisions shaped the future of the coal fields for decades to come the key event that began to change relations in Castlecomer was the Easter Rising which broke out in Dublin on April the 24th in 1916. The rising organised by republicans committed to an independent Ireland was crushed by the British but it evoked very different reactions among the people in Castlecomer. Richard Wandersford then still serving in the British army in France certainly did not hold back when he wrote to Castlecomer: Isn't this affair in Dublin disgraceful? I hope to goodness it will be severely dealt with as traitors deserve and all ringleaders are handed over to the military authorities. Then on May 3rd after the rising had been suppressed he wrote The blackguards in Dublin have been wiped out and disposed of. Finally on May 9th after the British authorities had begun to execute the 1916 leaders he wrote I'm glad to see by yesterday's papers that the government or rather the military are dealing firmly and decisively with the rebels. Others in Castlecomer, though had a very different view of events and indeed the British army. A few days after the Rising, a 24-year-old Castle man, Patrick Beelan, was found buried in a shallow grave in the cellar of a pub where he worked on North King Street in Dublin. He had been shot six times. Patrick Beelen had not played any part in the Rising but he had been one of 15 people massacred in the North King Street area of the city when the South Staffordshire Regiment of the British Army had run amok. These events began a transformation of politics in Castlecomer and Ireland. Increasingly, the Home Rule movement lost ground to the Republican movement who wanted full independence. If Richard Wandersford disliked Home Rule, he despised the prospect of independence. However, by 1917, the Republican movement, organised in a political party, Sinn Féin, had established a branch in Castlecomer, and they contributed to the success of a Sinn Féin candidate, W.T. Cosgrave, in a by-election in Kilkenny that same year. The following year of 1918 saw this republican movement become the undisputed masters of Irish nationalism when the British government threatened to introduce conscription and offered Home Rule as a reward. This was a disaster for the Home Rulers. Opposition to conscription, which would have seen Ireland's young men drafted into the meat grinder of the Western Front, which had already killed millions, was immense Support for Sinn Féin who opposed conscription soared. Meanwhile the support for Home Rule, which had been inextricably linked with the brutality of war and conscription, plummeted. The world of 1914, where Richard Wandersford could stand as a Unionist and win, were long gone. In nineteen eighteen, as the cries from a major Sinn Fein rally organized in the town square of Castlecomer against conscription drifted across the River Dean to Castlecomer House, there was no denying that war had changed the town. Meanwhile, in the pits, things were changing too during the war, the demand for coal had soared, and sales had almost doubled between nineteen fourteen and nineteen seventeen these years seem to have been somewhat chaotic though. The trade union movement in the colliery had collapsed again and it was replaced by wildcat strikes. While records of trade union activity in Castlecomer between 1908 and 1918 are sparse an account written by a mine manager, J.P. Sample, gives a glimpse of the situation in the colliery by late 1918. He wrote to the Board of Trade in England stating that the men have no union which makes them very difficult to deal with in the matter of disputes. They do not give the 14 days notice in the ordinary way and may or may not intimate that they have a grievance before downing tools. When they do this they go off into the country to do work for farmers and are very difficult to get together again. This somewhat chaotic situation could only prevail given the relatively strong position of the workers as the demand for coal had increased. Given there was probably more than enough work to go around they could, to some extent anyway, dictate their working conditions. Certainly this seems to have been reflected in the nearby Wolfhill colliery where absenteeism soared from 4.5% in 1914 to 14% in 1918. Clearly there was little fear of being sacked. The end of the war, which eventually came in 1918, did not return stability. If anything, it only made things worse. While the British Empire emerged victorious, The peace terms, which formally brought an end to the war, had a major impact on Castlecomer. The defeated Germany was forced to pay for the costs of the war. Utterly bankrupt, they began to export coal to the victors to pay these costs. This undercut the price of coal, which was a disaster for the coal mines. In the face of uncertainty, the miners increasingly began to organise into a trade union again. Wandersford's manager, Mr Sample, in his letter to the Board of Trade in 1918, had concluded with a worrying note. While I would give them every encouragement to form a union of their own, I very strongly object to any connection with the transport workers. The transport workers he was referring to were organised in the ITGWU, a trade union established by James Larkin and James Connolly and was the most militant union in Ireland. It was famous for its battle with Dublin employers, during the 1913 lockout. In 1919, the worst nightmare of Wandersford and his managers came to pass when the colliery workers joined the ITGWU and major industrial conflict was now just around the corner. Meanwhile, in January 1919, the War of Independence began when two members of the Royal Irish Constabulary were shot by Republicans in Tipperary. Within a year, this war Combined with a radicalized workforce organized in the ITGWU, would bring revolution to Castlecomer. The next show, The Revolution Underground, promises to be great as strikes, ambushes, industrial sabotage, and kidnapping become part of life in Castlecomer during the War of Independence. You can help make this episode better by supporting my research. If you enjoyed today's show and would like to see more like it, go to IrishHistoryPodcast.ie and click Donate. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie and click donate. Until next time, slán.